The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we think we know everything, don't we? Or at least we know what we know and we know what we don't know. And we think we've considered everything under the sun with the frequency of the stars in the sky. And then something comes along that reminds us that even familiar questions have plenty of new angles. Literature fans and former English majors are no doubt familiar with the role of Europe and the United States in the Africa of the 20th and 21st centuries. These contacts have been well chronicled by both Western and African writers, and much discussed in critical works and classrooms. But how about the long-standing complexity of exchanges between Africans and Chinese? How has that been reflected in African literature? I had no idea. I had never thought about it. But as soon as I heard of this topic, I thought that is something worth knowing more about. And so I was glad to hear from Duncan Yoon of New York University and the Cambridge University Press that he has written a book covering just that topic. He joins us for a fascinating discussion today on the history of of literature. Okay, here we go. Lots to cover, and I think we just start right from the beginning with Duncan Yoon. So let's get straight to it. A little bit of housekeeping first, actually. My thanks to all the new Patreons at patreon.com slash literature, and those of you kind-hearted souls who have donated at historyofliterature.com slash donate. You're helping to keep the lights on here at the Jack Wilson Studios, and we do appreciate it. Later in the show, we'll hear from Catherine Howe, expert in pirates and witches, who will discuss her choice for the last book she will ever read. But first, and right now, Duncan Yoon, China and African Literature. Okay, joining me now is Duncan Yoon, a professor at New York University and chair of the Modern Language Association's forum, African Literature to 1990. He's here today to discuss his book, China in 20th and 21st Century African Literature. Duncan Yoon, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me, Jackie. This is great. So I'm looking forward to talking to you because this is a topic I don't know too much about, and I'd like to start with some basics the book looks at what's called the longstanding complexity of exchanges between Africans and Chinese as far back as the Cold War and beyond. So what have these interactions been like? What presence or influence has China had in Africa? Yeah, this is something that's, uh, I think, really important to think about when we're talking about Africa-China relations. Um, most of the time, if you look at the stuff that's out there on the internet or even some of the scholarship, it's really focused on the last uh, 20 years or so, what mm. might be called the super cycle period. Uh, whereas these exchanges actually go back quite a long ways, um, all the way actually back, if you want to talk about maybe material histories, 
uh, even ninth, ninth century uh, CE. So we're talking about indirect globalization or what scholars like Kiriyama have termed archaic globalization, where you have through indirect channels, different uh, products like Celadon or or ceramics or ambergris, these sorts of uh, material histories that through trade that have found their way to uh, to the Swahili coast, primarily uh, in the Indian Ocean. So there's that kind of really deeper history. The next kind of big moment um, that's often touched upon uh, and often uh, sort of uh, invoked within the contemporary moment is uh, the Zhenghe expeditions from the uh, 15th century, where uh, China's sent out these huge armadas across the Indian Ocean. And this Admiral Zheng He made it all the way down the Swahili coast. I believe he made it all the way down to what would be Mozambique now, down to Maputo during that period. And so this is how, I don't know if you've seen, there's been like, there's pictures of like uh, giraffes that were brought back and different animals and different products and stuff like that. So that's actually, symbolically speaking, one of the, the most important points of reference for contemporary relations. It often is... Uh, is put into the the geopolitical discourse around the win-win, around the idea that uh, you know China didn't colonize Africa like the West did when we arrived. It was a more uh, mutual exchange, which of course is always debatable. But this is one of the major major points of reference for contemporary relations. And then I would say, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, in those 15th century excursions, were those primarily for trade as well? Or were those exploring? Or what was the nature of what was motivating those missions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is an interesting period in, in Chinese history. I'm not a, I'm not a historian of, of ancient China, but from what I understand, it was about um, seeing what was out there, about opening up different trade routes. There's a kind of turn inward that happens, and you'd have to bring somebody on who knows more about this. But the, the expedition stopped, and there was a kind of turn inward and towards mm. more domestic turmoil and things that were going on mm -hmm. um, within China during that earlier period. So um, it was really about exploration and trade contacts. And um, I've read some things where they talk about when the Portuguese showed up um, later, uh, next couple centuries, uh, a lot of people on this. Well, Healy Coast were like, oh, we've already seen people like you before showing up on these big boats. So right, um, there's right. a really interesting kind of older moment here that in many ways is is in, uh, anticipates the contemporary moment, you know. Um, so really what we're seeing is something, especially with uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative and all these different things that are in the media headlines. This is actually maybe a return to a much older form of globalization in terms of the, the regions that are interconnected rather than something that's entirely new. Right. Okay. So I think I interrupted you and I'm guessing you were about to talk about the Cold War. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, so the next big thing is the Cold War. You know, most folks usually think about the Cold War as the U.S. and the Soviet Union kind of these big hegemons, heavyweight battle, duking it out. But really, for the rest of the world, they're decolonizing during this period, especially during the 60s and 70s across mm. the African mm -hmm. continent. And so histories of third worldism, Afro-Asian solidarity, uh, the Bandung Conference in 1955, the Africa-Asia Bandung Conference that kind of announced what we might call the, the post-colonial era into the world uh, during that period, the third worldism becomes a really important part of thinking about the history of Africa and China during the Cold War. You know, Maoism is seen by many African writers and intellectuals and politicians at, during this period as a kind of non- uh, Western, non-white form of modernization, form of national nation building, Marxism, socialism, you know, mm. um, these diff these big debates that uh, dominated the Cold War are still being kind of carried out in different ways. 
But for a lot of African leaders, say, for example, Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, he's looking at, at Maoist China as an example of a socialist development project for national modernity. And since colonialism, for all practical purposes, was a form of capitalism, mercantile capitalism, um, a lot of these African leaders were very curious to th- see what sort of alternatives are out there. How can we think about development outside of an explicitly capitalist framework. Mm. Of course, you know, with, with Mao, it all gets very complicated, but that's actually a bit of what the, the controversy is about Maoism as, as a symbol within, within a lot of African literary texts that I'm looking at. Right. So as the United States and the Soviet Union were kind of using countries around the globe as almost proxies and, and trying to, the U.S. trying to develop democracy and capitalism and the Soviet Union trying to develop their system of government. There were a lot of leaders, uh, it sounds like in Africa, who would say, well, what's Maoism exactly? What are they doing there? And, and might that be more of a model for us if for some reason we don't like the other two options? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, Julius Nerere uh, in Tanzania was a master of this. He, he played all the blocks off of each other and mm. pulled as much mm-hmm. from each of them as he wanted to in terms of aid and, and, and direct investment and just even ideology. I mean, a lot of these leaders like Nerere and Nkrumah were, uh, were also philosophers. They were really wrote you know, lots of texts about what does it mean for a post-colonial African state to develop not only just in terms of economics, but also philosophically speaking, um, you know, African humanism, um, modern consciousness. What, is the, what do these sorts of things mean in our own contexts for our own development? Okay, so then the Cold War ends, and China is also going through a lot of changes. Uh, they're very different than they were during the Cold War. But what's happening today? What, what has happened in the last, say, 30 or 40 years? And what do we see developing over that period of time? Yeah, I mean, this is what's really interesting. So the last uh, 20 years or so has been has been characterized by this really uh, huge push in foreign direct investment, billions and billions of dollars being poured in. And that's been characterized as the super super cycle period. And a lot of this is um, in response to, you know, how the PRC has changed itself in terms of how its you know economy is structured, you know, the open up and reform periods under Deng Xiaoping in the in the 1980s really thinking about how to, you know, modernize and industrialize through, you know, kind of a mediation of the global capital market with the domestic economy. So this is why you had these special economic zones sort of spring up all along the eastern seaboard of the PRC during this period. And they were doing these things called resource for infrastructure deals with with countries like Japan. And they've actually taken this model that they used for their own earlier development and now have applied it to their relations with different African countries. So these resource for infrastructure deals, there's been a lot out there about, you know, debt trap diplomacy and how, you know, the, you know, the PRCs indebting different African continents and they're going to retake the infrastructure and so on and so forth. And there's, you know, there's real concerns around debt for sure. But what's often left out of the equation is this idea, and this is from um, Deborah Bautigram's um, book, uh, uh, The Dragon's Gift, that came out and has become a, a pretty important text within the, within the field, is that most of these big resource for infrastructure projects are not linked explicitly to liquid capital being dispersed directly into the host government's coffers, which then 
leads it to be subject to embezzlement and so on and so forth, which has been one of the Achilles heels of so much of, of development projects coming out of the IMF and the World Bank and the so-called Washington Consensus during the 80s and 90s. What happens here is you have these resource for infrastructure deals where the infrastructure, whether it's a railroad or, or you know, a port or a road or any, any sorts of thing, which all often leads to a said resource or facilitates the extraction of said resource. But the infrastructure project itself is funded. It's connected to the resource that they're extracting. So. It's like a 21st century bartering where it's like, okay, so we'll give you, you know, we'll give you a railroad if you give us, you know, X billion tons of bauxite. Mm. So the idea here is that the one, the funds are never dispersed to the host government. So, you know, there's a big joint venture that's put up between the host country company and a PRC company. And they've basically foot the entire bill first and build everything. And then only at the end is is the payment cycle put into into play. And that payment cycle is about how much, you know, X ton of bauxite was going on the market and whatever they agreed that each ton of bauxite would be or each barrel of crude oil or whatever, whatever resource it is um, to basically pay back the, the infrastructure. So the real way for these things to, for someone to default on their debt is if there's a disruption in the extraction of the resource, which is why the PRC is often very much interested in showing up the status quo in many African governments. Okay, so we're moving toward literature. But before we get to literature, mm. let's talk about just the effect that this kind of situation would have on the people of a country. So I'm guessing that what they're what they would be seeing would be there would be more uh, people from China, engineers and managers and and maybe some, uh, you know, banker, investment banker types who are in the country and they would have some some contacts with people like that. But they would also be seeing a new railroad or a new port or something like that. Or or maybe they would be working and they would be aware that their employer ultimately is from China and that might have some impact on on their day to day life. Are you able to see the effects linguistically or culturally on this kind of interaction between uh, China and Africa? Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, you know, when I was writing my dissertation, um, I was primarily focused on the Cold War as whether, as well as, oh, I forgot to mention this, another earlier era of contact was through indentured labor. So, for example, in one of the novels that I look at, it's Henri Lopez's Lise Le Flamboyant, The Lily and the Flame Tree. It's a Congo Brazilian author, really famous author within the Francophone world. He's also a politician, was the prime minister in the Marian Guabi government. And he wrote this uh, kind of sprawling literary novel about the racialization of ideology. So the main character is mixed race Congolese and Chinese, and he's actually the son of a indentured laborer that was brought by the French to build the Congo Ocean Railway in the 19th century, and then mm. just stayed on and ended up marrying a Congolese woman who in the in the novel is also mixed race herself, white and black. So the protagonist then sort of is a, he's a cinematographer, filmmaker. So there's this kind of meditation on the nature of, of aesthetic production and creation and narrative, telling the story of the Congo, the history of the 20th century. In, the, in Brazzaville, in particular, Maoism was a really big deal. Um, there was different schisms within the government. There was a, a Maoist faction that tried to overthrow the Nguabi's government. Um, Ange Diwara was his name. And so you have, um, during this period, the novel sort of tracing the history of Congolese post-colonialism, Pong Congolese post-independence, 
through this lens of race and ideology. So there's these really interesting scenes where, for example, the main character, you know, is part is a cultural attache on a diplomatic mission back to Beijing at, during this like kind of high moment of third worldism. And there's this whole conversation taken with another character who kind of represents a kind of version of post-colonial femininity. She takes on different characterizations throughout the novel. But during this scene, this characterization, she's a guerrilla fighter who's being trained by the Maoists, you know, in China to uh, to join the Pierre Maquis in, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so they're having this conversation under the chromo of President Mao with the East is Red is in playing in the background. And Huang is the protagonist's name. He's come back to China, not necessarily for the ideology or the politics or what she's there for. He came back because he's like, oh, I've never been back to the country where my dad's from. So there's this kind of like diasporic, you know, yearning, this kind of Saffron calls the myth of the return to come back to the place and and somehow, you know, derive some sort of meaning from this diasporic loop that you're that you're completing. And so he's he's kind of thinking a lot about racial relations and and wanting to explore the country more in that sense, whereas she's telling him, oh, you got to be careful, you know, because you even though you are half Congolese, you're also half Chinese and you look precisely like the, the body in which they would hide a spy. And so you have this kind of Cold War intrigue with him, not only kind of sort of ironically, physically, corporally, rep- like manifesting Afro-Asian solidarity as being both mixed, you know, African and Chinese. And yet at the same time, either side, due to ideological vacillations, could see him as a traitor due to the color of his skin. Right. OK, let's take a quick break and come back with more from Duncan Yoon. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. So in thinking about the literature, I think a lot of people will be familiar with post-colonial literature or contemporary literature as taking a look at the at a European colonizer or the West in general, how is it different to look at Africa-China relations? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, I, in the epigraph of my book, do you mind if I read it really quick? I got no, it right not at all. 
All right, so this is uh, this is from Edward Glissant, The Poetics of Relation. And Glissant is uh, a really important figure within post-colonial theory, Caribbean theory particularly, the idea of creolization. And in many ways, the, the book is an attempt to do a Glissantian reading of Africa-China relations. Of course, the jury's out of how successful I was. Here's the epigraph, and here's the kind of point of departure for a lot of how I'm thinking about the book. And this is Glissant, quote, Whereas the Western nation is, first of all, an opposite for colonized peoples, identity will be primarily opposed to, that is, a limitation from the beginning. Decolonization will have done its real work when it goes beyond this limit. So I really like that quote because you're, you're spot on, you know, like a lot of post-colonial literature is, is fixated on, on this relationship between the former colonial metropole and the colony. And so, so much of the literature, even when we're talking about things like diasporic identity, is about looking back to the colonial metropole, a period of time in the colonial metropole, or dealing with things like the politics of language, like what does it mean to speak and write in English or French or Portuguese and, and these sorts of things. And that that relationship, um, while extremely important, and of course is never really done, and I don't mean to suggest that my work is outside of post-colonial studies or post-colonial literary critique as such, I'm really just sort of building off of this earlier period. I'm interested though in what happens when we look away from that often overdetermined relationship of the West and the rest. And it's not it's not necessarily just, you know, the African continent. It's it's everywhere, you know. I mean, the in the especially given, I don't know, the past four centuries or so, even five if you include the US, so much of globalization has been running through the West. And what's so interesting about this moment and the shift to a more multipolar era of globalization is that you have these different connections, these exchanges, these histories that have been occluded even or forgotten about relationships between regions of the world that are not with the West. So we might call this South-South. Um, we might call this minor transnationalisms. We can, there's a bunch of different ways that people are talking about it. But what I was interested in writing the, the book, by looking away from the West, just simply looking towards China, right? Instead of thinking, okay, so how is England represented in Chinua Achebe or, you know, traditional society or something like that, by saying, okay, let's look elsewhere. One of the, the subsections of my book is called African Literature Elsewhere. And so what happens when we shift that gaze to East Asia and China in particular? What kinds of comparisons are revealed? What sort of histories emerge? Um, what sort of um, way, how does identity become reconfigured when we when we think outside of that binary? So I think it's a really important thing for understanding, you know, the the simple question with the book was I just wanted to understand what what do African writers think China means? Right. Like, what do they think it means? Right. Symbolically discursive. But what does it mean? Right. And you I have here that China has been a controversial symbol in African literature. And I, I guess I'm wondering what the symbol has been, how that's worked, and who it's been controversial to. Oh, this is, yeah, absolutely. So this is what you see, you know, often in the media headlines, very sensationalized, you know, China colonizing Africa and all of these things. It's a very, it really sparks a lot of debates. There's a lot at stake, um, especially in terms of how the, the dynamic is characterized within Western media outlets. But one of, you know, there's a series of controversies, right? So the first one is this idea that China is colonizing Africa and what is Chinese colonialism. And I actually prefer 
in my book to use the term extractivism. Mm. Uh, I call it a Chinese extractivism because I think it's really important not to conflate, you know, centuries and centuries of colonialism and imperialism and occupation and displacement and geographical violence that had that characterized, you know, Western colonialism with the past, you know, 20 years of Chinese extracting raw materials, building infrastructure, offshoring, you know, mature industries. You know, there's definitely social dislocation happening. I talk explicitly about that. You know, there are issues of human rights and minds. Scholars, though, have have pointed out that, you know, the, the, the human rights abuses aren't just <laughs> limited to Chinese managed minds. This kind of roughly takes place across, at least within the Zambian Copper Belt, across all the different kinds of, you know, foreign nationals that are managing minds. But one of the things I, I think is really important is even just quantitatively, I think it's really important to point this out in this uh, Political economist, trade statistic scholar Erickson, he 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 wrote this really great article tracing the sort of, you know, the percentages of actual natural resources, minerals in particular, that are controlled by the PRC or PRC associated entities. And he found out that found out that it was only about six point seven percent of all foreign direct investment with regard to mineral and mineral extraction on on the African continent, whereas. A huge multi, one huge multinational Anglo-American controls close to 15%. So the entire PRC doesn't have half of the control that one multi, huge multinational conglomerate does. So, so it's a question then of like what, what's going on here? Why is, why is this accusation of Chinese colonialism so prevalent? What does it persist? You know, and I, I talk about this in a couple ways in, in the book. Um, in chapter two, I look at genre fiction in particular and two novels that are focused on gold mining in Ghana, a detective novel called Gold of Our Fathers by Kwai Kwarti. And then uh, kind of a post-colonial thriller, Zambian writer Mukuka Chapanta. Um, called uh, Casualty of Power, and it's about uh, Zambian copper mines and, and violence in, in the copper mines. And both of these texts are interested in thinking about the relationships between resource nationalism, so gold in Ghana and copper in, in Zambia, and, uh, and masculinity, post-colonial masculinity. And so what's interesting about the detective novel, and as, as a piece of genre fiction, it's very much wrapped up in, like, who's at fault here? Who is to blame for the destruction of the environment, for the displacement of peoples, for, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, giving over of, of different land rights to the Chinese to come in and do this, what these wildcat gold mining is called Galamsey. And so what's interesting is that in classic fashion, the novel opens up with a, you know, a murder, somebody discovering one of the Chinese managers who's been murdered and, and buried in the mine. And so what's interesting about both of these texts is that the mine then becomes this the site of contestation, not only of identity, but also of the threat of re-emasculation. So what I'm interested in in that chapter is, is interpreting how these two novels show how even though Chinese extractivism cannot be equated with the history of, of European colonialism and imperialism, what it does is it triggers the threat of this colonial trauma being, you know, reactivated, right? mm. this idea that mm -hmm. the resources are going to be taken away again, you know, then there's going to be a kind of re-emasculation because of the Chinese presence and so on. And each of the texts, especially Gold of Our Fathers, stages this through, you know, heteronormative love interests between uh, African women or Chinese men and all of that sort of stuff. So the point here is that with the Chinese presence, we also have to think about how it's different, historically speaking. Like, what is it about the, the contemporary moment that distinguishes it 
um, both quantitatively but also qualitatively uh, from this you know previous moment of colonization. And I look with you know because I'm a literary scholar, so I do I do analysis of temporality and space and representations in the in the novel. And actually, for me, that's a big part of the qualitative argument is that the temporality, how time operates, is different. For example, you know, in previous areas of colonialism and extraction of natural resources, you know, there was just this assumption that the resources were infinite. Like there was no there was no like we could just keep extracting resources as much as we need to, you know, fuel our industrialization in the West and so on and so forth, you know. But now, you know, given again, this is one of the kinds of temporalities that I'm tracing in these novels is that you have this emergence of what uh, Michelle Membe and others have called uh, the planetary. And so you have to take into account the fact that, you know, everyone's aware <laughs> that these resources are now finite, that if you do lease, you know, a, you know, a mine to the Chinese, you know, in 20 years, that resource may not exist. And right. so this kind of finitude of natural resources and the rise of, you know, a kind of, you know, the, the climate crisis, awareness of the of the precariousness of our planet and all these different things. This is now actually actually part of of, uh, of the mentality, part of the representation, part of what China means for a lot of these African writers. Right. Well, it almost seems like the legacy is is so important there. It kind of reminds me of the Green New Deal and how in the U.S. and how it was, a you know, an environmentally focused set of legislation. But then in that would say, OK, but we're not going to make the mistake that we've done in the past when we start funding these big projects of having things be unjust. And we're not going to have it just favor a certain group of people. And instead, we're going to also build into it. Uh, some some laws that will try to or some features of this law that will try to even the playing field for everybody or benefit everybody, including the local communities where that might be hit the hardest by something like this. And it seems like in Africa, you know, there's a big uh, naturally there would be a big feeling of, OK, China's here. They're they're here to do business. They're here to extract resources, and they're going to promise us a lot of things. But we've heard this before. Isn't this just the same old thing, you know, happening again? And I'm I'm guessing a lot of people on the other side would say, well, you can't really look at it as the same old thing again. They're not here with their military. They're not here imposing a religion on us. There's a lot of differences between colonialization and and what's happening now. And that's where the poets and the novelists and the genre fiction writers and everybody step in and say, well, what is happening? What What is the effect going to be? And how does this impact people in ways that are visible and maybe not so visible? And, you know, like you say, this, including all the changes that have happened since then, we now have the internet and we now have a lot of things we didn't have during the Cold War, including this consciousness, this awareness of the effects that these things will have on a planet or on a, a local community. And it, it so what what is the attitude, what is the approach that you see from these artists who are depicting this? Are they angry? Are they frustrated? Are they more optimistic than they've they might have been? Or are they just trying to to describe what happened and you don't see a a tone like that? Or I'm I guess I've I probably should have started with this. It's probably different among different individuals. But is there anything that you, you've you noticed about that in terms of the attitude that these writers are bringing to their projects? Yeah. Uh, well, here's the thing. You know, the 
Chinese presence, the, I mean, different writers have very different understandings or different approaches to it. I mean, this is the thing. There's this idea that with the Chinese arrival, that maybe there's a possibility of something happening differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of skepticism around this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who don't feel like it's actually going to you know, come down to changing folks' everyday existences. You know, there's been a lot of, you know, anti-China populism, um, to quote another scholar, with regards to different um, politicians manipulating anti-Chinese sentiment to, to become elected precisely because there were so many issues with, mm-hmm. with the mines. And, and you could demonize them. You could say here, they, you could say they're, they're here, of course, they're here for their own you know, their own good and, and you could blame problems on them and, and say, well, they're they're here because they're selfish. And don't you remember how this has happened to us in the past? Yeah. You know, how can we be critical of a dynamic without resorting to prejudice and racism? And mm-hmm. you would think mm-hmm. you would think it'd be pretty easy. But the discourses, which are colonial discourses, colonial tropes like the yellow peril or the agentless African are taken up and reconfigured within the contemporary dynamic. So what I really tried to do in the book was be critical of these dynamics, you know, not exonerate anyone, but at the same time, not mobilize a racist or discourse of prejudice to sort of blame, you know, X, Y, or Z population for, for their shortcomings. But look, here's the thing. If you know, the, the you know the PRC may be you know shifting the global order. Uh, scholars have talked about you know international order building and and this kind of new bid for perhaps a new form of hegemony. Who knows? We you know the jury is very much still out on that. But what these writers do is that they give us the the creative language, they give us the the mm-hmm. symbol, they give mm-hmm. us the discourse, they give us the images, they give us the metaphors. You know, to really try to understand what it means. How is it different? How if we, if we don't know what the terms are of this new possible hegemony, then how do we how do we resist it? How do we look for different ways of, of being and relating to different people? There's a really great quote from uh, from Aminata Forna, who she actually attributes to Nadine Gornimer. It's about the difference between nonfiction and, and metaphor. And it goes, nonfiction reveals the lies, but only metaphor can reveal the truth. Mm. And I think that's really important to think about within also this context of of Africa-China relations. Right. Because how you would think, well, how can that be? Nonfiction, its job is to be truthful and to, to talk about facts and so on. But if it's talking about a situation that's complex, the truth is often trembling between one side and the other. And it's it's that's where fiction can kind of fill a gap where it can it can allow two opposing positions that might both be right, but might both be in opposition to each other. And it can present them and it kind of opens a way to an argument or opens a way to a uh, an insight that wouldn't happen if you were just trying to nail things down on one side or the other. Yeah, and a great example of that to return to your question about what's controversial is uh, a few of the the novels I look at, whether it's or literary works, whether it's the Henri Lopez literary work or um, the series of poems by Kofi Wunner, the Ghanaian poet diplomat. It, is when it's talking about the Cold War and the symbol of Mao, right? So Mao, Mao can mean many, many different things. And what's interesting, uh, for example, a Wooner 
Um, you know, when he's the, he the first poem I look at, he's analyzing or he's kind of interpolating Mao's long march into Pan-Africanist struggles. So there's this kind of Pan-Africanist long march in his his poem, "The Black Eagle Awakes," that he that he looks at. But then he, he later on he looks at another you know event. Tiananmen in 1989 and sees that as the betrayal of the Chinese revolution. And mm. so what's so interesting about the way in which Mao and Maoism shifts over time is that it this paradox, which is, you know, maybe the metaphor that is the truth as opposed to, you know, the lies or the facts, is that Mao somehow in the 20th century, especially within African contexts, came to symbolize simultaneously, you know, guerrilla fighter against, you know, you know anti-colonial guerrilla fighter um, and democratic dictator simultaneously and you actually see examples of that like in the in the democratic republic of the of the congo during the congo crisis and and the uh, um, the assassination of Lumumba. Um, you had this uh, Maoist uh, maquis form uh, with Pierre Mulele, uh, who were you know called the Lubumbaists, and they were you know trained in guerrilla warfare by the Chinese. Mulele was writing these kind of political tracts and manifestos that were you know very similar to Maoist documents with regard to the the behavior of the of the guerrilla maquis, how to comport oneself, uh, how to fight all these different things. And then with Mobutu, he ends up appropriating not the guerrilla aspect of Mao, but the autocratic aspect of Mao and mm-hmm. publishes his own little green book of axioms that that is very much, you know, taken after the little red book. This happened. This is like a whole genre of third world uh, propaganda literature. If you wanted to look at it, Kwame Nkrumah also has his axioms, which he called a little black book. There was this kind of of appropriation within the Congolese context of of Mao as autocratic leader. And so both of these things existed simultaneously. And I think that's what literature does for us is that it it stages the possibility of two things that are logically in contradiction with each other, a paradox, but resolves that paradox for us, shows us how that paradox can exist. How these two things that seem to be in complete contradiction with each other can be logically explained. Mm. And paradoxes expose gaps in our in a way of approaching something logically or expose for us those those spots where we have to really do the hardest thinking in order to figure out, well, since this paradox is out here, what do we make of it? What do we how, what does that teach us? What do we where do we go from here? Absolutely. For a listener who is new to the subject and is eager to learn more, are there any books of fiction or poetry or any particular authors that you would recommend? Yeah, probably one of the books I was most excited to write about in my own book was in the conclusion. This actually came out in 2019. Ivan Andiamo Awur. Kenyan writer, The Dragonfly Sea, uh, this kind of sprawling epic uh, of the Indian Ocean inspired by a woman who, who uh, you know, a real real life story of a woman who is purported to have Chinese an- ancestry through the DNA testing and these sorts of things. And she gets kind of pulled up into the geopolitical discourse and goes to China and studies, you know, studies in the PRC and so on. But the novel is, you know, just that's the inspiration for it. But it's uh, very much about... Uh, the Indian Ocean and this love story between a Kenyan woman and a Chinese man and thinking about, you know, the aesthetics in that novel are really great 
she writes the novel. It's very lyrical, um, but it's written in this kind of proleptic bursts or just like it almost feels like these they're like these sections where waves are kind of crashing, you know, into the shore. Um, and this is really, you know, a lot of what she's 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 trying to to talk about. And I haven't, I haven't really mentioned it too much, but one of my key concepts in in the book is this idea of the alluvial. Um, this is my main metaphor. It's like a, a way to think about you know, what is washed up on the shore, what is washed away, what accretes, what erodes, you know, both in terms of the relationship between sea and land, but also in the relationship between cultures, between peoples, between individuals. And so that novel, I think, really does a great job of exploring that idea of impermanence, you know, permanent impermanence. And, you know, she talks a lot about how she did this whole interview at the Ake uh, Literary Festival a few years ago, but she she really is a proponent of thinking about Africa-China relations within African terms, within specifically Kenyan, Swahili, Arabic. So the text is very multilingual. She's kind of bouncing between these different languages. She even has Mandarin in the different passages. So there's something really great about that text. But I've also, you know, if you're interested in poetry, there's this kind of curious volume by Dennis Brutus, the famous uh, anti-apartheid activist. Um, and poet out of South Africa, he visited uh, China during the Cultural Revolution and got you know the propaganda tours and all of that sort of stuff. But then he wrote this little chapbook called China Poems that's kind of written in this sort of sparse. It's done to uh, imitate the Zhuizhu form, which is this kind of traditional Chinese. It was kind of uh, it, it kind of inspired the the haiku and and stuff like that. So that's an interesting mm -hmm. little curiosity of the Cold War. Uh, mm -hmm. Lots of double speak and double discourse in that. We didn't talk too much about it, but my third chapter is on memoir and diaspora and diasporic identity. And um, there's this really great memoir by Ufrida Ho, Paper Sons and Daughters, uh, growing up uh, Chinese in apartheid South Africa. Uh, I actually just did a, a Q&A with her uh, a couple weeks ago. She's fantastic. And it's all about, you know, what is it, what is, what does it mean to be Chinese South African? What is it, what does it mean for diasporic identity be thought about in the relationship between Africa and China. Um, so that's a good that's a good one. And then, well, for your francophone readers out there, a novel from Mauritius, which is an island in the Indian Ocean, um, by Amal Um The title is actually in English. It's called Made in Mauritius. Uh, but it is uh, written in French, hasn't been translated yet, unfortunately, but it's all about the Chinese Mauritian community in, uh, in Mauritius and the, the, the focus of character, the narrators, a, a, a Mauritian of South Asian descent. And so it's this, again, similar to uh, the Lily and the Flame Tree, Henri Lopez's novel, it's this kind of 20th century historical novel of Mauritian decolonization and independence. The uh, the main character's family shows up from Hong Kong in a shipping container, which then becomes their like the the, the their boutique and then switches again and becomes like a blockade and a political manifestation and then switches again and becomes like the actual stage upon which the Mauritian flag is raised in independence. So it's uh, it's a really interesting novel to think again about diaspora and the Indian Ocean. And then one last novel I'd plug is uh, Inkoli Jean Bofen's Congo Inc., The Last Testament of Bismarck. Um, this Bofen's won a bunch of awards. This has been recently... I 
I guess not that recently, maybe 10 years ago, been translated by the Global African Voices series at Indiana University Press. So it was originally in French, but is now available in English. And I would recommend that if you're interested in a kind of a picaresque hustler in looking at extraction of national resources in the Congo and the corruption of politicians and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so let me see if I've got these. I don't think I have them all, but let's repeat them for people who are uh, listening along. We've got Congo, Inc., by Incoli Jean Bofan. Mm-hmm. And that's B-O-F-A-N-E. Yep. Okay. We've got Made in Mauritius by Amal Sutohol. S-E-W-T-O-H-U-L. Suto, yep. And uh, Paper Sons and Daughters by Euphrida Ho, H-O. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And China Poems by Dennis Brutus. Mm-hmm. And Brutus is spelled like uh, B-R-U-T-U-S. And then um, the first one I missed, the first novel you mentioned by the woman who wrote the sprawling novel. Yes, uh, Ivan Andiamo Awur, The Dragonfly Sea. Ivan Andiamo, how do you spell her last name? Uh, O-W-U-O-R. Well, those are some good recommendations. I will throw in a... um, a recommendation of my own, which is to start with China in 20th and 21st century African literature. Okay, Duncan Yoon, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Mm, that was Duncan Yoon, whose book is available now everywhere. It's in the Cambridge Studies in World Literature series, if that helps you find it, cambridge.org. Okay. Up next is Catherine Howe, novelist and historian. After she and I talked about her new novel, which told the true life story of Hannah Missouri and her sojourn among the pirates, I asked Catherine a special question. Okay, we're joined now by Catherine Howe, author of the novel A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, and editor of both the Penguin Book of Pirates and the Penguin Book of Witches. Catherine, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. And I'm going to tell the listeners we have here that you shared with me that this has been a a difficult question for you. You're not sure that you have an answer. It's a tough one. It's a tough one because, you know, the temptation is that I would like you know, to have my last book be a favorite book, mm, you know, mm-hmm. that I would yep. like to have my last book be The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, Ooh, which is yeah. my favorite novel, absolutely. It's the first novel written by a woman to win the Pulitzer Prize. It is also, I think most people don't really think of it in these terms, but it is a masterful work of historical fiction. Yeah. Because she was writing in the 1920s, but about the 1870s. Right. Um, So relatively recent past, but nevertheless, part of the whole point of the Age of Innocence is her recognition of the way that social mores have changed from the time of her writing to the time of the story being set. Right. So that would be my temptation. But I think I would amend that in one way by saying that, you know, if it were the end of my life, I would love if my son happened to be a writer for the last book that I read to be something he has written. Mm. How old is your son now? He's four. He's four. Does he show any uh, 
inclination? Is he a storyteller? <laughs> Do you see the seedlings? <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. He's absolutely, absolutely a storyteller. The other day, he headed off to Montessori, kitted out in his uh, in his cowboy boots with light up spiders on them, and a belt to which he has affixed a little keychain thing that he has fashioned into a scabbard for his foam sword. And he looked at me in all seriousness, and he said, I'm Sir Gareth of Orkney as a kid. <laughs> so he's definitely... He's on his way. And a, so. and a, and a fan of narrative. <laughs> so you're a fan of historical fiction. You are a historian yourself, who's also a novelist. I'm hoping it will it will come long before. Maybe this will be like his 10th or 12th book or something. But I'm imagining maybe a, a historical fiction that's set in the Gilded Age or Golden Age of Pirates or some era that appeals to you. Remember, like, he was born in 2019, which mm. to me still seems like the future. Like, from yeah. his perspective, he could write something set in the 1970s and it would yeah, be exactly. very far exactly. past. <laughs> maybe it'll be, he'll write the great American disco novel. Has that been written? I don't know. That's how you'll know that it's probably time to go when he yeah. comes up to you and says, I've written this historical fiction and it's set in 1985. And you... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> At least then I'd be able to proof to proofread it for, uh, right, for, right. for, yeah, for you'll material be... culture. I'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Nobody had CDs in 1985. Those were really expensive. Everyone had cassettes. <laughs> Okay, Catherine Howe, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Catherine Howe, New York Times bestselling author, for that quick cameo. Hard to overlook the age of innocence, but if it's that book or one written by your own child showing such imaginative power at the age of four, well, I guess Wharton can wait. Or, well, I guess if this is your last book, wait for what? I guess I should say Wharton had her turn. And my thanks to Duncan Yoon for that most illuminating discussion. And my thanks to you, good podcast listeners, dear listeners, for spending a little time with our humble little podcast in your ears and minds and hearts. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.